Hi, this is Daniel Pink, and you're listening to togo.fm. Hi, this is Chris Brogan, and you're listening to togo.fm. Hi, this is David Meerman Scott, and you're listening to togo.fm. Welcome to Inbound To Go. This is the show where we bring the best thought leaders and speakers from the world's leading sales and marketing conferences straight to you. We pull out the best takeaways for sales and marketing pros looking to move their business forward. Today's episode is brought to you by Delivery, a weekly newsletter sent by me, Chris Handy. Each week, I put great thought and care into crafting a one-of-a-kind email just for you. I'm including things that I've found on the web, I'm including things that I'm thinking about, and I'm looking at the latest industry trends for content marketers and sales pros so that you can do your job better. Head to togo.fm, that's T-O-G-O dot F-M, to subscribe for free. My guest for today's episode of Inbound To Go is Daniel Pink. He's a New York Times bestselling author, most recently of To Sell Is Human, The Surprising Truth About Moving Others. It uses social science, research, and stories to look at the art and science of sales. So I thought this would really be of particular interest to our audience today. I am really excited to present this conversation that we recently had. Uh, we're going to talk about a whole lot of stuff that you may not expect. So here's that conversation. Hi, Daniel. Welcome to the program. Hey, it's, uh, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Absolutely. Your book, To Sell is Human, is one of those books that really just makes you think. And one of the best things that I like about it is it introduces many people to the fact that we're all sales. We're all in sales, no matter what we're doing. Can you talk a little bit about what got you thinking originally about this? Yeah, I mean, Chris, it's a good question. The, uh, actually, what got me thinking about it was at some level my favorite topic of all, which is me, myself. Um, <laughs> what I did is I was, I was very frustrated one day, and I frustrated like many of us do. Like I felt like I wasn't getting anything done. And I decided, and I probably had a writing assignment too, so you know, the first thing writers do on deadline is procrastinate, find something seemingly legitimate to do that isn't writing. And so I went, I was wondering, like, where the heck did the last couple of weeks go? And I started looking in a very detailed way at like, how I spent the last couple of weeks. And I realized that a big portion of what I was doing was, was selling, not only, you know, trying to get people to buy books, but, you know, other kinds of things. I was in a, you know, I'm on a couple of nonprofit boards and I'm in a nonprofit board meeting. I'm trying to say, no, 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 we need to go in this direction, trying to sell them on the idea of taking a slightly different strategic tack. Um, you know, I'm at an airport. I'm trying to get an airline gate agent to switch me from an, a window seat to an aisle seat. Uh, I've got three kids. I'm trying to get my, you know, my, my son, uh, who's now 12 years old, to, you know, do his homework or take a shower after baseball practice. And I realized that enormous amounts of my time I, I was spending, you know, selling stuff. Not And, and again, selling in this broad sense. And that got me. Re that's one thing that got me really interested in this topic. The other thing that got me interested in this topic um, was in writing about business for the, you know, really for the last, um, you know, nearly 20 years now. Uh, I've, in, I've interviewed a lot of salespeople and, and encountered a lot of people in the sales profession, and they are not, the, especially the really good ones, are nothing like the stereotypes that people have about salespeople. They're, you know. They're not sure. flat-handers. They're not like deceitful, you know, frauds. They're really smart. They really know what they're doing, you know? And it's like, why is the, the stereotype so different from the reality? So those kinds of things converge. And I said, all right, let's write a book about, let's write a book about sales that takes it seriously. 
And let's write a book, um, you know, really for people like me who aren't in sales, but actually are in sales. So uh, on a scale from one to 10, Daniel, how, how ready are you to clean your room? Would you say? <laughs> um, I, my, you know what? If you were to look around my office right now, my office is I'm reasonably neat actually um, for for someone you know for for a writer and a self-employed guy I am reasonably neat so I am actually pretty ready to to do that but it's a great question to ask because what you um, um, it's a really great question to ask something called motivational interviewing so you've obviously done your research and your due diligence here. Uh, it's a really good technique. Uh, it comes from a guy named Mike uh, Pantalon at, um, at Yale University. And what it is, it's a technique really from the therapeutic literature, therapeutic profession, to try to convince people, persuade people, get people to do stuff. And it begins with that question. On a, so let's say you, know, you had a kid who didn't want to clean his room. Uh, my son, you know, his room is a um, – I have two daughters and a son. My son is the youngest. But his room is like a disaster area. It's just unbelievable. And, you know, so if I say to him, let's say I wanted to get him to clean his room, I could say, clean your room. You know, I could scream at him. I could threaten him. I could bribe him, whatever. Not going to have much of a long-term effect. And instead, I could use this technique that you just mentioned, Chris, of this motivational interviewing technique that goes like this. I could say to him, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, how ready are you to clean your room? Now, chances are he's not very ready to do it. So let's say that he's a 2. Dad, I'm a 2. Instead of saying, which would be my instinct as a parent, what do you mean you're a two? Um, <laughs> it's my instinct, I'm going to suffocate my instinct for a moment and instead go with the, the process here and ask him, okay, you're a two. Why didn't you pick a lower number? Now, that, always, that second question is really the key. Um, and that always throws people because they expect you to say, well, why are you a why are you a two? Why aren't you at an eight? Why don't you pick a lower number? Now, what happens there is that he has to defend his choice. Like, why aren't you a one? Well, you know, I'm 12. You might say, well, I'm 12. You know, I should probably have my act together. Um, you know, I, you know, sometimes I, I can't find stuff. So, like, I get in trouble if I don't have my homework. Um, um, you know, I like to play Nerf basketball in my room, but sometimes I can't find the ball because it's buried under all this debris. And I'd be able to play more Nerf basketball if I could find my ball readily. Um, and so what happens there with this question and that follow-up is that he begins articulating his own reasons for doing something. And here's where you really get to the punchline here. When people have their own reasons for doing something, they believe those reasons more deeply and then adhere to the behavior more strongly. And so this is a way to use questions, particularly Mike Pantalon's two-question little uh, uh, double step um, to get people to do stuff that at some level they actually want to do a little bit but don't quite realize it. I, I really found so much value in in that I, I actually saw the video that you did of uh, explaining that situation. And it it just got me thinking about the different ways that we do ask questions in sales and how we can better persuade folks and how we can better inform them with our questions. And I I know that you've been, you've been talking a little bit about the ABCs of persuasion. Yeah. Can you, can you go through that? Yeah. Yeah, 
absolutely. But l- l- let me get to your point because I think it's a really. Let me just say one quick word or eighty quick words about your point. Sure. Because um, I think it's I think it's really important. I mean, th- you know, salespeople have always asked questions, but you know, at some question at some level, some of those questions are a bit, can be a bit duplicitous. So if you go in there, if I say to you, Chris, are you the kind of guy who likes a bargain? That's not a question. You know, that's a that's a an, that's an attempt at, at at manipulation, and so. If you have questions, that questions can be a way to surface people's own reasons for doing something. The other thing is that in terms of actual sales, sales, particularly in B2B, what really matters today is expertise. Do you know that in B2B, say, do you know that prospect business inside and out? And one way to do that is to ask questions, questions that help you learn. Um, so, you know, I, I really think that questions are uh, an underused tool. So let's get back to this thing about the ABC. So one of the things, the, the big reason, that, the big way that sales has changed, again, sales of Winnebago, sales of ideas, whatever, has changed over the last really 10 years, is that we've gone from this world of information asymmetry to information parity. Information asymmetry is a world where the seller has a lot more information than the buyer, number one. The buyer doesn't have many choices, and the buyer doesn't have a way to talk back. That's the world that we've lived in for much of our time, buying and selling things. And that's, that information asymmetry is why we have the principle of buyer beware. Buyers have to beware, because they're at a huge disadvantage, and sellers can take the low road. This is why people think that, that, that salespeople are sleazy and duplicitous and dishonest and pushy, that they have a huge information advantage. But what's happened in the last 10 years, in basically every market for everything, is that that information asymmetry has become something closer to information equality. So now you have this world where buyers have as much information as sellers, in many cases. Take cars, for example. 20 years ago, the car dealer knew more than you about cars and that particular make and model. Now you can know as much about that car dealer as car, about cars or that particular make and model. Um, so buyers have as much information as sellers. Buyers actually have an incredible number of choices. And this is something that I think gets overlooked sometimes. Uh, buyers have all kinds of ways to talk back. If you mistreat me, if you take the low road, if you try to, um, you try to be a shyster, I'll make a video about you and put it on YouTube. I'll tell all my Twitter followers. Um, and so, what this, so again, we've gone from this world of buyer beware, well, of, of buyer beware, of buyer beware, um, where buyers have not much information, not many choices, and no way to talk back, to a world now, which I think is a world of seller beware. Uh, where buyers have lots of information, lots of choices, and all kinds of ways to talk back. And so the real question here is, how do you flourish in a world of, of seller beware? When the, the, the balance is, is even, if anything, the balance is a little bit in favor of the buyer. And a way to answer that question is to look at the social science. Most of the social science of sales has come from a world of information asymmetry. So how do you persuade, influence, and sell on this remade terrain of information equality? And the social science, again, if you go wide and deep into research in behavioral economics and uh, even neoclassical economics in uh, linguistics and cognitive science and social psychology, uh, begins to piece, you can begin to piece together these evidence-based ways to be more effective. And it ends up just, I lucked out, you can arrange them in terms of ABC, a la always be closing. So the qualities now that are most necessary in selling, persuading, influencing are A, attunement, B, buoyancy, and C, clarity. A, attunement, get, you know, can you get out of your own head and see things from someone else's point of view? 
Um, you don't have much power to force people to do stuff to coerce. So how do you understand where they're coming from, what their interests are, and how do you find common ground as a human? Uh, buoyancy is um, how do you stay afloat in the ocean of rejection that is sales? Salespeople, anybody selling something gets rejected all the time. And we hate rejection. So how do you stay afloat in the ocean of rejection? And the social science gives us some really interesting clues about how to do that, about what kind of self-talk we should use, about what kind of explanatory style we should have in the face of failure. And finally is clarity, um, which we've touched on a little bit. We live in a, we used to be in this world where having access to information gave you an edge. Now everybody has access to information, so that no longer gives you an edge. What gives you an edge, an edge is the ability to curate that information, to make sense of that information, to separate out the signal from the noise of that information, to, as I was explaining earlier, to take your expertise in a particular domain and say, based on my expertise, here's all this, this wealth of information out there, but you know what? This piece is germane, and this piece is germane, and this piece is germane. That's all signal. The rest of it is noise. You don't need to worry about that. And then that's one aspect of clarity. And then the second aspect of clarity is, can you go from problem solving to problem finding? And this is really important. If, if your customer or prospect knows precisely what its problem is, they don't need you very much. They can find a solution on, on their own. And this is why salespeople as problem solvers is becoming a little bit archaic. Because if I know what my problem is, I don't need a salesperson. Um, I might need it in a B2B setting to get a lot of bidders to drive down the price. But beyond that, I don't, if I know exactly what my problem is, I don't need a salesperson. When might I need a salesperson? When I don't know what my problem is, or more likely, when I'm wrong about my problem. And so the premium in sales has shifted from the skill of problem solving to the skill of problem finding. Can you identify problems people don't realize, companies don't realize that they have? Can you surface latent problems? Can you look down the road, one beat, two beats, three beats, and say, here's a problem you're not facing now, but you're going to face it right there. So those are the ABCs. A, attunement, get out of your own head into someone else's head. B, buoyancy, stay afloat in that ocean of rejection. C, clarity, go from accessing information to curating it, from solving existing problems to identifying hidden problems. So pulling out some takeaways from what you just said on the spectrum of transactional to uh, more uh, more complex sales. Yeah. It, I, I think what I've seen is that we're moving towards the transactional sales being automated. And we've seen that totally. in e-commerce and we've seen that in in just maybe lower levels of people in the in the organization being order takers as opposed to uh, as opposed right. to what what we've called in the past consultative sales folks. And Right. Uh, so as we move into the age of more information being available and we get get more into the need for the ABCs, I don't know that consultative sales is is even the right word for it. And, and, you, and you, you saying problem finding, I think that's yeah. a great step forward. So for the small to medium sized business owner or the sales manager who is listening to this, what do you think the best first step forward is to get to that mindset and move my organization in that direction? To the, to the level of problem finding rather than problem solving. Yes, sir. Um, I don't, I think it's going to vary from place to place. Uh, I think that, but there are a number of, I think there are a number of options. One of them, as you say, is to, uh, is actually to go ahead and automate what's automatable. Um, the fact that, um, the fact that, 
certain kinds of sales functions, transactional functions are automatable and therefore might endanger a particular sales person's job. Um, in the long run, should it, I mean, you obviously have to treat that person well, but in the long run, should it matter to the company? Um, so you automate what's automatable. What that's going to do is that's going to free up time for people to do this more higher-end expertise-based sales. So I think the first step would be to automate what's automatable. The second thing is I actually think there's something to be said for rethinking uh, compensation structures. Um, I think the compensation structure for something that's transactional is, you know, every time the cash register rings, people get a dime. Um, I think that makes perfect sense. But in a long sales process, in where you're discovering issues, um, I think that you might want to actually pay people well to hire great people because you're essentially hiring people to be as much management consultants in B2B at least, as, as, as much management consultants as a sales force. Pay people extremely well. Uh, pay people healthy base salaries at least and actually um, um, make the variable comp more about um, customer satisfaction um, and less about actually, not entirely about making the cash register ring. Uh, also, the more complex sales that you have, the more it's about involved team. So you might want to move to something a little bit more team-based. But get past the idea that all salespeople are like the full of brush man, and so every time he sells a brush door-to-door, he gets a little chunk of it. Um, that's very good for transactional sales. I think it needs some rethinking for these longer sales cycles, more complex products, um, much, much, much more, you know, it's consultative to the third, you know, to the third power. Uh, so I think that, that, that's something that you can do. The other thing is that I, I think that you need to think about who you hire. Um, uh, there's a, there are a lot of mythologies about who do you, who you hire in a sales force. And I think what you need is you need people who are willing to become experts in their field. Um, not just, you know, it used to be that we would, they would sometimes hire, people would sometimes hire sales force because they had, you know, they were gregarious and friendly to people and, you know, were these kinds of um, extroverted order takers. And that profile is gone. You want someone who is an extremely hard worker. You want someone who is not actually strongly extroverted. You want someone who is able to work on teams and you want someone who can, build the expertise that's necessary in this new world. And th- that's a point that I, I really, really enjoyed into selling this human is making the, the distinction between introverts, extroverts, and ambiverts and finding right. the qual- the best qualities for, for anyone. But, you know, applying that to sales, uh, I think you introduced a point that, you know, a little bit of both is, is better. Yeah. It's not, you know, this is not just my guess. This is what the research tells us pretty clearly. Um, there's some great pieces, you know, if you look, you know, we have this notion, this stereotype that good salespeople are strong extroverts. And what the research shows is that, yeah, strong extroverts are pretty likely to get hired in the sales, or, or you know, basically to go for a sales job. They're fair, you know, pretty likely to get hired for one. They're even fairly likely to get promoted for one. Um, the problem is that there's no evidence that shows they're any better at sales when it comes to actually selling stuff. And now people hear that, they're surprised, and they say, oh, that means we want to have introverts. And, and the answer is no. Strong introverts are terrible salespeople. What you want are what are called ambiverts. Now, this is a term that most people haven't heard, and yet it's been in the academic literature since the early 1920s. An ambivert is someone who is, as you say, exactly, in the middle. 
they're a little bit they're a little bit extroverted, a little bit introverted. They're not fully one way or another. I mean, if you just think about the prefix ambi as an ambidextrous, they can go left, they can go right. And what ambiverts are able to do is that they know when to speak up, and they know when to shut up, they know when to push, they know when to hold back. And so, what this research, a uh, lot of it done by a guy named Adam Grant at the University of Pennsylvania, has shown, is that there is a there's not an extrovert advantage in sales. But strong extroverts are not good salespeople. Uh, they, they often read as too pushy. They uh, sometimes can be too self-centered. Uh, most important of all, they don't listen very well. But that doesn't mean that you should go out and hire strong introverts, because strong introverts stink too. Uh, what you want to do is you want people who are in the middle, who are these ambiverts. And the good news is that um, if you look at the, the distribution of extroversion, introversion levels in the population, most of us are ambiverts. Most of us are a little bit of both. Relatively few of us are strong extroverts or strong introverts. Most of us kind of have some qualities of both. So, Dan, I think those are some great takeaways here for, for sales reps and sales managers and even business owners. Uh, you've been quite prolific in a multimedia channels these days. You, you recently had a, a show on National Geographic Channel. How, how has that experience been with crowd control? It was great. I mean, it was a lot of fun, and I, you know, I hope we put on some good shows. We, uh, the show is called, as you said, it's called Crowd Control, and what we did is we tried to do a show really about behavioral science, uh, but in a practical context. So what we did is we took problems that people found aggravating, everything from jaywalking to kids peeing in swimming pools, and then we used some principles of behavioral science along with some cool design and technology to come up with a solution. We went out put the solution in place, turn on our cameras, and try to see what happens. So we went out and did about 45 experiments all over America to try to, you know, get people to pick up dog poop, to try to get people to stop double-dipping guacamole, to try to get people to wash their hands in restrooms, uh, to get people to drive more safely. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a really interesting window into human behavior when you actually stop and watch people um, see what they do on a day-to-day level and how really profoundly difficult it is both to get their attention and then to alter their behavior. We'll definitely link, link to that in the show notes and we'll look forward to Great. seeing you at the inbound conference this year as well. I'm looking forward to it. It should be, uh, should be a great conference. Dan, thanks for spending your time with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Everyone, thanks for listening to togo.fm. And don't forget to head over to togo.fm, that's T-O-G-O.fm, to get all the show notes and my weekly newsletter, which is called Delivery. I curate all the best content from everything I learn all week into one concise email, send it out to you. And if you would, please go head over to iTunes and leave us a review. It helps us get found and it helps us produce the show further. So thanks a lot for listening. See you next week.